Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in Indiana's prison system and beyond. I'm Emma Johnson. And I'm Mia Beach, and we're your hosts for this program. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we want to share some prison-related news. The first DACA recipient to be deported during the recent aggressive immigration raids has just filed a lawsuit against the Trump administration. 23-year-old Juan Manuel Montes had been living in the U.S. under the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program since the age of nine when he entered the country with his family. His DACA status should have protected him from deportation. According to reports, he was approached by ICE officers while eating at a restaurant in Calexico, California. Montez did not have his wallet and was not allowed to retrieve it from his friend's car and was therefore unable to prove his DACA documentation. He was deported several hours later. The lawsuit aims to uncover information about why and how authorities were able to forcibly remove Montez in this way. The Prison Policy Initiative reported that incarcerated people's charges for medical care threaten their health. In most states, incarcerated people pay medical co-pays for such services as physician visits, medication, and dentistry. For such a person who earns an average of 14 to 62 cents an hour, his or her co-payment of two to five dollars is the equivalent of hundreds of dollars in co-payment for a minimum wage worker outside of prison. In West Virginia, for example, one doctor's visit costs nearly an entire month's pay for an incarcerated person making $6 a month. In Michigan, it takes an incarcerated person more than a week to earn enough for a single $5 copay. The equivalent for an unincarcerated person would be $300. The most egregious examples of medical fees and copays are states like Texas that pay nothing for incarcerated people's labor. That state charges a flat $100 annual health services fee per inmate. Fusion reports that on April 13th, the GEO Group, one of the largest private prison corporations in the U.S., announced that it had won the first federal contract under the Trump administration to operate a new immigrant prison, euphemistically called an immigration center, in Conroe, Texas. The prison, which will cost $100 million, will house 1,000 people and is slated to open next year. It will be the second immigration and customs enforcement prison that the GEO Group runs in Conroe, which has a population of only 71,000. One of Trump's first acts as president was to sign an executive order enumerating plans to target and deport undocumented immigrants. Part of that plan was expanding ICE's powers, recruiting local law enforcement to work for ICE, and constructing more prison space for detaining immigrants. In the first month of Trump's presidency, 1,100 new immigrant detention beds were added to immigrant prisons across the nation. In the Pacific Northwest, a wave of hunger strikes among prisoners in immigrant detention centers is entering its second week. On April 10th, 750 detainees launched a hunger strike against inadequate meals and high commissary prices. On April 18th, the strike spread to the women's wing of the Northwest Detention Center, which is administered by the GEO Group. Other demands now include improved hygiene and allowing prisoners to wash their clothes in soap and water, increased recreation time, the creation of educational programming for long-term detainees, improved medical care, higher wages for prisoners' work, given that they currently receive $1 per day, 
speedier legal processes, and allowing parents to hug their children during visits. Supporters on the outside have set up an occupation to call attention to the hunger strike. The encampment will continue 24 hours a day until the strikers claim victory. In terms of solidarity, strikers are also requesting that people call GEO's regional field director, Brian S. Wilcox, and demand that he meet the demands and give detainees immunity for their participation in the strike. His phone number is 206-835-0650, extension 2. GEO Group administers private prisons in the U.S., South Africa, Australia, and the U.K. In Indiana, GEO manages the Newcastle Prison, among other facilities. Last week here in Bloomington, clashes between the police and protesters erupted on the IU campus. Students, faculty, and community members gathered outside of Franklin Hall in protest of the lecture being given by Charles Murray. Murray, author of the infamous book The Bell Curve, is a noted pseudoscientist whose views and writings promote white supremacy, eugenics, and misogynist politics. In response to a petition that gained hundreds of signatures requesting the lecture be canceled, the IU administration brought in the IUPD, the BPD, as well as dozens of state troopers to stifle any of the community's objections. The armed police were stationed at each entrance of the building to ensure that no one entered unless they had a ticket for the lecture or could prove that they were attending a class at that time. Officers wearing camouflage vests and carrying guns stood on the roof of the building above the protesters who had gathered outside. Although the protests were nonviolent and mainly featured music and dancing, the police became aggressive as the evening went on. At least three students reported being physically assaulted by officers, one of whom was caught on camera repeatedly shoving a young man into the ground. Another student was detained without cause and led into the building in handcuffs. Immediately following her detainment, protesters broke down the police barricades, advanced on the officers with arms linked, demanding her immediate release. After 30 minutes of these demands, she was freed. Earlier this month, we learned that here in Bloomington, the Monroe County Jail is planning to shut down its AIR dorm. AIR stands for Addicts in Recovery, and the dorm is a special unit that offers additional programs and support for prisoners struggling with addiction. While it's received its share of political criticisms, many participants have described it as a useful, life-changing experience. To tap into the experiences that have come out of the AIR dorm, we're dedicating this episode to sharing the perspectives of some of these prisoners and some of those who have worked to provide them support. Let's get started. This is a piece called Love and Fluorescent Lights by Laura Lesertmer. And it was written prior to the news that the air dorm was going to close, um, trying to capture the way that the men in the air dorm are community to one another and what that means to them. Raise your hand if you like the sun. Raise your hand if you seek out the spot on the couch where the sun's rays are resting. Raise your hand if you can tolerate a cold winter as long as the sun still warms you every now and then. Now run and hide. Go to a place without sun, an inner room, a closet, the basement, and sit there for a moment in the dark. Now turn on a fluorescent light and leave it on. And don't turn it off and don't leave that room until, well, I can't say how long you'll be there, but probably not more than two years. We'll wait to hear from the judge on that matter. The first floor dorm in the Monroe County Correctional Facility has no windows. It is a basement dorm, 
flooded with fluorescent light 22 hours of the day. The primary colors here are not red and blue and yellow, but orange and white. Orange pants, orange shoes, white shirts, white walls, white lights. The 12 men who live here are captives. Their food is passed to them through a slot in the door. Outdoor recreation is a distant dream and not permitted anytime the temperatures dip lower than 62 degrees since captives don't have coats. Other than a few times a month when they visit the jail library, these 12 men spend every minute of the day in this cinder block room the size of a three-car garage. So I know that something powerful is happening when Cody, a man in his late 20s with a slick 1950s pompadour, tells me, What I feel in here is a kind of peace. You want the best for the next person, and the next person wants the best for me. He continues, We joke that the dorm is our coffin. We say we're buried underneath the jail. We got not a damn window around us, but even with the lack of sunlight, the lack of atmospheric sustenance, we're still growing. It's not just Cody. He's not the only one saying crazy things. Aaron, a bespectacled, gentle soul, chimes in. We are in a little tiny place under the jail, but this is the complete opposite of what jail is supposed to be for people. We are growing inside instead of living a life of anguish and pain and turmoil and regret and shame. We are breaking that kind of chain. Because when you have nothing, not even sunlight or freedom, and you're locked in a cell with 11 other people, you do have each other and you do have yourself and there is nowhere to hide. Aaron elaborates, this is the place where we start to look in the mirror we have people trying to teach us how to love, and love is a harsh thing to do, especially loving ourselves. Cody and Aaron are being held at the jail on charges related to drug use, as are most of the other men in the dorm. They are members of a therapeutic community called Addicts in Recovery, or the AIR dorm. After an application process, the men move from the cells upstairs, with windows, to the AIR dorm to actively work on their recovery. The dorm they occupy was originally built to house women trustees, inmates who are given special duties in the jail, like serving lunch. But the women did not want to live in the windowless room, and the jail couldn't make them. So, approximately nine years ago, the jail offered the space to the air dorm. The men in the air dorm are responsible for daily seeking after self-transformation. They organize book studies and peer-led recovery classes, and they participate in daily meditations. Max, the graying, unofficial sage of the block, leads the meditation group every day after lunch. The men gather to read and discuss passages from daily devotionals. They say, some days we'll have a meditation in the morning and we'll speak. The subject will be in some of our minds for hours. Sometimes it just goes and goes. Often, Rick, a volunteer who struggled with addiction, joins the men for the meditation session. He's not there to lead it or to give advice, but rather to sit with them, encourage them, and share from his own life experience. The unexpected gift of the basement dorm is its isolation from the rest of the jail population. In being separate, the men can create a positive culture built on love, trust, and interdependence. 
Go upstairs and there's racism and separation and somehow all that stuff is laid down in here, Aaron says. Brian, with his deep, even voice, agrees. It seems like when we first walk through the door, we drop our guard and we don't judge. There is no more judgment there. We look beyond the personality flaws of the person to the core of the person. For Cody, isolation from the world is what allows the men to be honest and vulnerable with one another. He says, being separated from society, I think, is a big reason why we are able to coexist so well. Because without the outside influence that provokes certain emotional responses, egos don't get involved. Here, if you ever got something to say to someone, pull them aside. Because if it's in front of other people, egos flare up. But if it's one-on-one, -on -one, you can kind of drop that and just be real. Even though they are isolated from the world, the men are not entirely separate from it. There are a handful of volunteers like me who visit weekly to teach something, like linguistics or creative writing, or to talk about something, addiction, recovery, community, or to do something, play games, draw, make collages, record books. The guards literally lock us in the block with the guys. This brings a sense of intimacy, vulnerability, and community to the relationships we build with the men. Though it is a short amount of time that we are literally in there, we see the meager mattresses they sleep on. We see the way they generously share their food with one another. We see the creative spirit at work, turning peanut butter lids into pucks to play air hockey on the metal tables. The volunteers help counter the condemning message these men receive from our society and from the oppressive institution they live in. The message they hear says, your life does not matter. Max says, I feel like we all have that in us naturally, that realization that yes, it is possible that somebody loves me without condition. I just think the volunteers turn a switch on in us. We're ready. I have the same experience when I visit the air dorm. I feel love. It's like Aaron says, you see the power of love flow down here in a crazy way sometimes, where it breaks people down and it lifts people up and it shows a lot of powerful characteristics in people that you wouldn't ever think you see in jail. Up next, we have a piece by Craig, who was a participant in the Air Dorm. Craig writes, The Monroe County Jail and its leadership is and has been at the leading edge of a justice system that is in dire need of a transformative change as it pertains to handling the national addiction crisis and the influx of addiction-related crimes. The New Leaf, New Life Air Dorm, consisting of 12 men who voluntarily live in an open dorm and, in addition to self-run and facilitated groups, attend groups and meetings run by local volunteers. The volunteer and group-facilitated meetings range from AA and NA meetings to linguistics discussions and creative writing groups. In all their uniqueness, each group takes on its own life and, in doing so, a path to self-discovery, which can only be measured by the individuals who have put themselves into a position to change for the better. There are significant differences between the regular block versus the community dorm that are and have been essential to allowing personal growth to not only take place but to, in fact, flourish. 
In quarters, such as the regular blocks, the recipient of official punishment languishes in the cheerless company of others, equally miserable, hopeless, and resentful. An inmate is herded about by men half afraid and half contemptuous of him, toward whom all inmates learn early to present a steadfast attitude of hostility. An atmosphere of monotony, futility, hate, loneliness, and even sexual frustration pervades the dark cells and cold brick walls like a miasma, while time grinds out weary months and years. To describe what it means to be an inmate, how it feels to be confined, the agonies of the long moment of suffering, is impossible for one who is not, quote, eaten out of a slotted tray. The psychological state of complete passivity and dependence on the decisions of guards and officers must be included among the pains of imprisonment along with restrictions of physical liberty, the possessions of goods and services, and heterosexual relations. The frustration of the inmate's ability to make choices and the frequent refusals to provide an explanation for the regulations and commands descending from the bureaucratic staff involve a profound threat to each inmate's self-image because they reduce the inmate to the weak, helpless, dependent status of childhood. The incarcerated inmate finds his picture of himself as a self-determining individual being destroyed by the regime of the custodians. In the community dorm, however, this is not entirely the case. In fact, the very opposite can be witnessed. As one current community member stated, quote, I sensed a difference the moment I walked in. I was asked if I needed anything. This is a community no one goes without, end quote. I joined the community simply to improve my external environment, but before long, it began to change my attitudes as well. The program's emphasis on introspection caused me to examine my life, to see myself for the person I had become, a man far removed from the values my mom and dad had instilled in me. I didn't like the person I saw in the mirror. For the first time, I began admitting to myself that perhaps some of my ways were wrong. But my confession was only a tiny crack in the diamond-hard shell around my heart. My conscience had been so seared by sin that it was easier to patch up my harsh exterior than to acknowledge the broken boy within me who was crying out for acceptance, forgiveness, and love. As I've learned more about myself, a desire has begun to build within me to help others avoid the mistakes I've made. I've seen this transformation unfold in other community members as well. For some, conditional love may have been the only form of love they had ever experienced prior to coming to the community. But in the community, a new kind of love, unconditional, has begun to peel back the layers of even the most hardened hearts. You want results? Show me a quantifiable way of how to measure when a man opens up to a group of his peers and admits that all he ever wanted was for someone to love him, to tell him that he mattered, that he was needed, that he was loved. I've realized that so many of the men in jails and prisons must be hurting from unmet needs deep inside. Within the community, my desire and burden to help my fellow addict to find the right path has been born. Up next, we have another contribution from an Air Dorm participant, Sonny Smith. He writes, Recovery Elysium, March 10th, 2017. Albert Einstein once declared, quote, Only a life lived for others is the life worthwhile, end quote. The New Leaf, New Life, Addicts and Recovery Dorm in the Monroe County Jail is a working example of this quote. In this highly unique and therapeutic community, 12 men are afforded the amazing opportunity to learn and live a crime-free life by tackling their addictions. Volunteers that I consider saint-like selflessly donate their precious time and energy assisting addicts such as myself to rise above drug-fueled lifestyles that lead to crime. Tanya, the program director, Frank, an addictions counselor, Lindsay, an IU communications professor, Victor, a retired business professor, and Mary, a CASA representative, are just a few of these truly transcending volunteers. 
The supportive resources that these people provide, combined with the passionate soul-searching efforts of the comrades that inhabit the dorm, creates a wonderful environment for catharsis. This magical microcosm within the jail's walls must be preserved to help addicts succeed in life as free individuals. Support our crusade to help keep the Addicts in Recovery program in the jail. Somehow, Ernest Hemingway always put things simply the best. Quote, the world is a fine place and worth fighting for. End quote. My personal background is as a biomedical scientist. Shortly after we moved to Bloomington, I volunteered with Pages to Prisoners, and the monitor there helped me learn a lot about the phenomenon of mass incarceration in this country. As a naive citizen, I, I had no idea how many people were being incarcerated in the United States and what that process looked like. I personally hadn't thought much about the whole ramifications of every incarceration, how many people other than the supposed criminal are being punished, their families, their friends, their communities, especially children. Part of my motivation is just to go in and, and try to bring something fun to the people who are in there. A co-teacher and I conduct a creative writing class and we bring in some pretty heavy poetry sometimes um, as, as a pathway to talk about addiction and trauma and redemption and recovery. But I, I think just having that environment of intellectual stimulation makes the experience more pleasant for the, the people and, and helps them be more fully themselves so that when they do get out, they haven't just wasted away during the time that they've been locked up. One set of our classes we run for people who are locked up in the general population of the local jail. And so for those, we meet in a central classroom. Uh, students are brought into this space and we sit around a table. It looks vaguely like what a college writing workshop would be. Our other classes we were conducting in the New Leaf dorm. Their tables uh, for their meals and their bunks where they slept and their showers were all enclosed in this small space. And so for those, we were basically going into their temporary home to conduct our classes there. So it was a very different experience. When I first started doing it, I thought it was going to be much easier to run the classes for general population because most of us, after going through elementary school, middle school, high school, we, we have this expectation that, okay, you go into a classroom and then you're, you're set to learn. And so there's this shift that goes on in your brain. The thing that I hadn't realized was that in general population, people tend to be very guarded about their emotions. The things we've brought in, we, we have seen people cry in many of our classes, um, but for the classes run with general population, I'd say the students were crying maybe only once or twice that we've seen. Um, my co-teacher and I do almost every time we leave. Uh, based on just things that people happen to say. But when, when you go into someone's home or living space and teach, they, they are much less emotionally guarded. And so you can do a, a lot more powerful work in terms of understanding both their approach to writing and their approach to life in general. My mother-in-law was murdered out in Albany, New York. And 
after this happened, I realized that the people who I wanted to talk through the experience with and who were there to help me work through my emotions were the men living in the New Leaf recovery dorm. They have gone through a huge amount of trauma in their lives and the community in that space was so open and trusting that it was very easy to talk about my own pain and be helped by them. One aspect of the New Leaf dorm that seemed very helpful for the men was that so much of it was self-directed. Volunteers like myself, um, an Alcoholics Anonymous worker, uh, people who brought in linguistics and philosophy, um, and even just simple game nights, uh, we, we would provide some enrichment, but most of the work and, and most of the commitment to working was provided by the people who were in there. Um, I, I think that sense of autonomy is really powerful, especially for someone who's trying to get over addiction. I think that many of the jails and prisons in this country really aren't set up to help people heal. I mentioned earlier about my mother-in-law's death, and I, I think it's telling that the individual who killed her had been incarcerated twice previously for nonviolent crimes, but he had been in prison for o- almost a decade for those um, nonviolent crimes. He was selling small amounts of cocaine both times, as, as far as I could tell. It seems extremely likely that being taken away from his family and his support network contributed to my mother-in-law's death. I, I think that the way that we have been treating people in jails and in prisons is making the world more dangerous for all of us. I know that not every facility has the spatial setup to be able to offer that, and maybe not all people who are locked up would choose to be in a small space where they see the same set of people day in and day out. But at least at our local jail, the people who chose to be in there found it much more helpful than than they have found general population. So I would love to see our local jail reinstate a program like that and as many jails and prisons as, as can provide this sort of self-directed space with access to a lot of programming and, and access to, to a community with a culture of trust and respect and hard work. To supplement our contributors' ratings, we'd like to give some updates and clarifying points about these programs in the state of the air dorm. This volunteer-run program is being replaced by a larger organization, Centerstone, that is partnering with the Sheriff's Department. It's state-funded, not volunteer-run. Another big difference is that instead of prisoners volunteering for the program, much of the participation in the new program will be compelled by court order. The aerodrome has been functioning for years via a nonprofit, New Leaf New Life. Although they'll continue programs in the jail, their space and the air dorm will be given to the state program. This new program will be serving prisoners about to be released, whereas the air dorm often served inmates who were in the jail prior to facing state prisons, where drugs are often a large obstacle to recovery. You can find out more about New Leaf New Life and their programs at newleafnewlife.org. This has been KiteLine. 
Anyone affected by the prison system in any form is welcome to write us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. KiteLine wants your feedback. You can reach us via email at kitelineradio at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. Are you or someone you care about affected by the prison system? You can call us to record a message to be played on the air at 812-269-2512 or you can use this number to record a message to a loved one behind bars. You can hear previous episodes of our show or get more information on the prisoners or stories covered on KiteLine at our website, kitelineradio.noblogs.org. You can also find our podcast on iTunes. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. We are not responsible for all views expressed on the program. WFHB, its contributors, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the views expressed on the show. This has been KiteLine. Join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our communities. Thank you for listening.